If you were here with us last week, you know we started a new series on the book of Colossians. And I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to have it open on your laps. Uh, It doesn't need to look like this. It could look like this. Um, I don't know. Some of you don't even know what this is anymore. But however you have it, have Colossians open. I think it's important that as we read through this book together, uh, that you feel like it's not just a book, but it's your book. It's not just God's word, but it's God's word speaking to you. It's not just on our screens. It's on your lap, and therefore it's in your life. If you were here with us last week, uh, you'll know that uh, we made a point of this. And if you weren't, let me encourage you to go back and listen to that message. It's available on our YouTube channel. You can access that through the website or a whole bunch of different podcast channels. One of the things that we talked about last week that as a community, as as a family here at the church, it's our desire to read the Bible, not just to pick up little bits of biblical knowledge. We're not just going to become experts in Bible trivia. Uh, we're not trying to accumulate facts about God. What we're trying to do is, is place ourselves in a situation to be changed by God. Uh, the Bible is, um, and hear me on this, this is a treasure, a a beautiful gift, but it was never offered as an end in itself, as if here's the book, that's all I got for you, take it with you. No, the the book is a gateway. It's a gateway that leads us into the presence of the living God and invites us into a posture of, uh, of receiving so that we can be changed. Our desire in reading the Bible, and particularly as we read through the book of Colossians together, is to be reformed in the image of Jesus. Uh, we believe that reading the Bible is, is not just some exercise that we check a box next to, that this is really what draws us into the presence of God. So let's, let's pause a little bit and let's pray before we start our journey together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this room filled with people and for all those who are joining us online. We know that you are present in all of these spaces. That you are a God who is with us. You're a God who draws near. You're a God who sees us and and knows us and loves what he sees. So I pray now, Lord, as we open up your word, that your voice, through your word, by your spirit, would speak louder than any other voices in our ears or in our minds that might distract us from hearing you this morning. And together we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning as we dive into the book of Colossians, I want to give you one key principle. And this is the one that we're going to really drill down on today. And here it is. You need to pay attention to the order of things. The order of things matter. When you're looking for what comes first and what comes next and what comes last, it matters. And here's why. When we get the order mixed up in our faith, uh, it's kind of a big deal. In fact, if you look back through most of history, when the church has made its most tumultuous, chaotic mistakes, it's usually because we've gotten the order 
wrong. You're familiar with the old expression, the cart and the horse. The cart goes before the horse. It, it goes deeper than that. We don't even want to be the cart. We want to be the horse. And, and, and when we feel like we're the ones driving this, we're prone to all kinds of mistakes. So we're going to come back to that idea, the order matters. And I want you to listen for that as we read through. Let's let's start. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Will you read along with me? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, but Timothy, our brother. And this is addressed now to God's holy people in Colossae, to the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we praise, when we pray for you. A few things right off the bat, and maybe this feels like this is primary school, but, but it's important to get these things right. We have here a, a deposit in the early history of the church, a letter written by, and it's autographed at the beginning, written by Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the church actually doesn't, doesn't know much of Paul in its early days, because Paul is a name that he takes on midway through his life. Up until then, he was born as, known as, led as Saul, Saul of Tarsus, a brilliant man, educated under the greatest of pedigrees in the ancient world, a key leader in the life of the Jewish community, and, and it's important that we acknowledge this, uh, a man who who saw nothing in Jesus worth following. In fact, who, who saw the claims that Jesus might actually be God's anointed one. Here at last, after so many centuries of hoping and waiting and praying, he rejected the, the idea entirely. And he wasn't alone. Most of the leadership felt that way. But his opposition, uh, it ran even deeper. It led him to be part of a movement that sought to stamp out any record of the early Christian church right there in its infancy. And that meant sometimes imprisonment, always persecution, even execution. It was Saul who was standing off in the shadows, presiding over the very first Christian martyrdom, Acts chapter 6, the execution of Stephen. So that's his starting point. And we need to be aware that in the order of Paul's life, Paul is never looking for Jesus as anything more than an adversary. Paul didn't go looking for Jesus. You could say that, that for Paul, at least, finding Jesus meant being found by Jesus. Jesus did all the work here. And again, the order matters. It was Jesus who did the first magnificent work in Paul's life. So here's Paul. He's writing to this, this young church in Colossae. Colossae, like most of the ancient cities in, in the Greek and Roman world, is filled with spirituality. Lots of religious activity. I mean, probably uh, a god for every activity under the sun. It's not that these are an irreligious or a non-spiritual people, but they didn't have any idea, any concept that, that the universe in which we live would be the breathtaking creative output of a God who, who holds everything together, including the people he made, and cares about what he made. Now, that was a revolutionary idea in the ancient world. The gods, as they knew them, were fickle. 
you know, would change their minds, used human beings as playthings, sometimes appeared on earth in human likeness and made a mess of things and then disappeared and laughed about the affair. You didn't get close to the gods. You placated the gods in order to get what you needed. You wanted rain. Well, you do whatever uh, aspirations and worship are involved in getting the god of rain to let loose with the skies, and on it goes. But there's no sense of intimacy with the one who made us and knows us and cherishes us. But in the middle of all that activity in Colossae, there's this one little group of people, a fledgling church, meeting together in homes and grottos and basements, and they're placing their focus squarely on Jesus. And, and here's, here's what Paul says. This is in verse 3. We're going to read verses 3 through 8 together. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Underline that word gospel. The gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel, there it is again, is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing since the day you heard it first and truly understood God's grace. And as for you, You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who also told us of the love that you have in the Spirit. Listen, there's so much that we could unpack from this opening passage, but I want to focus with you on three words. These are kind of, these are words at the mountaintop of of the Christ followers experience. The words are faith, gospel, and grace. Let's start with the word the word gospel. Uh, the gospel, the good news, which is what it literally means, is, uh, is the good news that, that something has happened in the world. Uh, notice what Paul says. He says that they have this simple faith. They put their confidence that someone or something has happened, and they give it a name. And it's not just the, the given name Jesus. It's a name with a title. This is Christ Jesus. Maybe that's a new expression, Christ Jesus. We're used to saying Jesus Christ as if it's first name and last name. Christ is a, is a title, not a name. It, it means an anointed one, a king. One who has been set aside by God for God's purposes. So to this Jesus, who they proclaim as Christ, they have put their faith. Not just any God, not just a collection of gods. This isn't just trendy new spirituality. I don't know. Have you ever said this in my life? I find myself saying this from time to time, and it's, it's probably not helpful, but, but I say things like, you know, it's good to have faith. You're visiting a family in the hospital, and you don't know anything about them. You say, listen, faith makes a difference here. Faith and family, I mean, these things can, can make a profound difference. Or, or we say things like, listen, we're, we're spiritual creatures. We, we all have a spirituality. It may look different. But Paul is not commending them just for spirituality or just for faith. He's commending them because of the object of their faith. It is faith in Christ Jesus And to get at it, he uses the word gospel, and he uses it a couple times. And again, simply put, gospel is not a religious word. It's a word that came from from regular society, and it means 
good news. Not, not just a, a little feel-good story on the third page of the newspaper. No, this was meant to be world-changing news. So a new king comes to power. And in the name of that king, we are proclaiming the gospel of Caesar. This is good news. There's a new head of the empire, and he's going to bring his values, his vision, his priorities. The empire is going to come to reflect who he is. That's only good news if it turns out that he's worth following. And Caesar and most of those who followed Caesar absolutely were not. Uh, Rome became a bit of a train wreck because they thought that the, the values of society were rooted in the identity of its leader, and that was catastrophic. We have these inscriptions that we find all over in the ancient world. This is the gospel according to so-and-so, and the gospel according to so-and-so. Common word. It means good news that something is happening. But this is the gospel of Jesus, that there is indeed a new king in town, God's anointed one. And, and everything that we long for in the world is fulfilled in him, even when we don't know it. And that's the key thing, even when we don't know it. Every time we cry out for a better world, you know, a, 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 a stronger marriage, a more vibrant family, a, a workplace that you look forward to going to, a neighborhood that you're proud to be part of, a country That puts a smile on your face when you think about its policies and its practices. Uh, A a, a world that that steps away from the brink of war and, and, and has a view towards combating poverty. All of those things. When we long for those things, we are longing for Jesus even when we don't know that that's what we're longing for. Because in Jesus, all of those values of the kingdom All of them are centered and rooted. The substance of the gospel is found in him. And the the nature of the gospel, the good news, is described by the next word. And it's the word that we love and we sing and we speak it before we eat. And the word, of course, is grace. This is grace. And there's so many layers to that word. We, We could camp out here all afternoon. We won't. But we are going to spend some time with this. Grace means uh, something that, that, that's received without any, any sense of merit. If you give me something that I worked for, that's not grace. That's a paycheck, maybe. That's not grace. Grace is unmerited favor. But not just that. It is the unmerited favor of the king. And in the Christian context, then, grace is the unmerited favor of King Jesus. One of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner, who just died um, in the past couple of years, he said this. He said, grace is something that you can never get. That doesn't sound very encouraging. But you can never get it because it can only be given. Grace is something you can never get. It can only be given. There's no way to earn it. There's no way to deserve it. There's no way to bring it to life any more than you and I deserve. I don't know the taste of strawberries and cream for breakfast or deserve the looks that we have or or brought about our own birth. We don't do these things. This is grace. 
And here especially, the order matters. What I want us to hear today is that grace preceded the faith of those who were, were living and, and working in that ancient city of Colossae. Grace precedes faith. The order matters. The order is important. And it's important as we take the book of Colossians and, and receive from it those truths that apply to our life. If I don't understand that, that grace precedes faith, then I'm going to be tempted to hear all the next verses as if there's something that I need to do in order to earn God's grace, something I need to do in order to deserve, deserve God's favor, to get God to like me. But grace can only be received. If it's earned, it's not grace. So listen as Paul goes on. We're in verse 9. Let's, let's read through to verse 14. Paul says, for this reason, since the day we first heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. And we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives. Why? So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Lord who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, you can't read Colossians without running out of breath, right? It's just like this one long, sustained burst of praise. And the order matters. What comes first is what God has done. That's what makes it grace. What follows is what's possible for us to do only because of what God has done first. The order matters. Notice the initiative of God of God here. Verses 9 and 10 talks about the Spirit of God that gives us wisdom and understanding. It gives us the ability to live a life worthy of the Lord, to please Him, to bear, to bear fruit. See, we're tempted to say, at least I'm tempted to say, I want to live, live a life that is worthy of the Lord so that it makes it easier for Him to accept me. Let me get my house in order. And then I'll come to God and, and He'll smile on me and and I'll feel like I fit in with God's people. It's, it's exactly upside down. It's reversing the order of grace. Verse 11, God's might, God's power is what strengthens us. So we have endurance and patience. Verse 12, it's God the Father who's qualified you. To share his inheritance. Past tense. This has happened already. You don't need to strive to achieve this. Verse 13. We are qualified. Why? Because God has rescued us. Hmm. It's an interesting thing. You know. When you read the, the Bible. At least I've never found a place in the Bible. A verse. That says. You need to become a Christian. Those words actually don't appear. The words that do appear. Are far more disruptive than that. As if someday you, work, you wake up and say, well, listen, I could be not a Christian or I could be a Christian. I choose Christian. No, no. no. 
with Jesus, it's, it's far more disruptive than that. Now, it doesn't mean that, that we can't look back on our lives and realize there was a hinge point, a, a place when I, I decided that this is who I am. This is what God has done for me. This is when my journey began. It's just interesting to me that whenever God t- talks in the Bible about what it means to follow Jesus, instead of a simple like, place, a checkbox in your heart, he tells stories. He, he uses words, and they're disruptive words, words like lost and saved and surrendered and rescued and bought and, and born again and And you know, those words may sound great for people who need them. But they don't sound really good for a lot of others. And sometimes they're even a little bit offensive. I don't want to be the one who's lost. I want to be the one who's out there finding other people. And so as a church, we we sometimes camp out on that identity. We're the found ones, and our job is to go find the lost ones. Uh, I want to be the one who gives Not the one who's always in need of receiving. I want to be the one who saves that person from despair and from their predicament. Not the one who needs to be saved. I want to be the one who fixes. Any fixers in the room love to fix things, especially people. I've not succeeded in fixing a single one of them, especially myself. I don't want to be the person who needs to be fixed. I want to be a fixer. I want to be the person who, who helps fund the rescue mission, right? Give me your, your Canada Helps project. Send me your GoFundMe, and, and I'll support the cause. I'm generous. I'm awesome that way. No, I'm not really, but I don't want to be the one who needs support. But this is what grace has done. Colossians 1.13, it, it gives us the right order. We are here Because we are recipients of God's great rescue mission. And Paul uses, well, it's a terrifying and a beautiful description of what that means. It says, God rescues us from the dominion of darkness. And then deposits us, places us in the kingdom of his own son. That we can live under the generous rule of God. To be in any kind of a relationship at all with God means surrendering to the rescue. I don't know, have any of you ever been in fear for your life when you've been in water? Like you really thought you were drowning? We were swimming one day with my parents who were never strong swimmers, and they get caught in one of the tides at Wasega Beach, and they really thought they were dying, that they were not going to survive. My sister and I were there, and we'd both gone through a dozen years of swimming lessons, and we were trained as lifeguards, and we had no idea. And there was Karina out there, who's a good swimmer, but not a strong swimmer, trying to get them to just stop kicking, stop flailing. Trust me, just let me hold you, and I will, I will pull you out. It requires a certain amount of I guess surrender is the word, to be rescued. We're not just saved, though, from something, from, from drowning, from dying. We, we get saved for something. We get saved because it, it places us in this new reality, the kingdom of the Son, the kingdom of God. 
And a kingdom always reflects the values of the one who rules it. So this is a glorious thing to be rescued from a kingdom of darkness and brought into this kingdom of light. Scott McKnight, another favorite writer of mine, he, he describes it this way. And boy, these, are, these are deep words. He, he says, the dominion of darkness is that deep, cosmic, demonic, personal reality it captures structures of society. It captures people. It systemically works to thwart the good plans of God. It's a mouthful, I guess. But I think really what he's trying to say is that anything that thwarts the good plans of God, that's the dominion of darkness. And anything that, that interferes, raises up barriers... Self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, judgmentalism, racism, passivity, fear. I mean, you could just add your own words to the list. Anger, injustice, malice, slander, greed, pride, snobbery. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. We are rescued from that. And the order matters because we didn't do the rescuing. God rescues. That's why it's called gospel. It's good news. The very best news. Life-altering news. The kind of news that doesn't make you just turn the page and look at the next story. It makes you stop in your tracks and say, if this is really true, it changes everything. We've come under the rule and reign of King Jesus. And to live under that rule and reign means that our lives are described by a whole new set of words. Words like goodness. And redemption, forgiveness, love. And again, you could add to that list holiness, compassion, kindness, justice, peace, and, and on it goes. We will, we will not only receive those things, we will, we are able to, to live lives like the sun. So grace means that God receives us. He did the work. And he did it first. And he welcomes us as we are. And that's the stunning part of it. Uh, he grabs you, baggage and all, everything that's, that's dragged around behind you. And he just says, let me carry you over the moat and deposit you here. And we're all stuck over here thinking, well, let me just get rid of this stuff first. Clean it up a little bit. And then, God, I'll come to you and, and we'll walk across the divide together. But it doesn't work that way. Because we never get really cleaned up. And God just doesn't want to wait. I will take you as you are and I will carry you across. But then the story doesn't end there. I'm not going to leave you like that with all of those encumbrances and guilt and shame in the past. No, we're going to deal with that, but, but we're not waiting. We're going to get you across first. The order matters, and it's what God does. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's God who qualifies us. I mean, here's really the good news. If you're asking that question, am, am I worthy of this? Uh, am I worthy? Let me answer it. No, <laughs> you're not. I'm not either. But because the order matters... It doesn't start with us. It starts with God. And the beauty of the gospel is that it's God who qualifies us and rescues us, 
Because it's grace. And you don't earn it. It's given. For God so loved the world. And you know that verse. That he gave. What did he give? Why did he give? Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Part of the rescue mission means that when you're deposited here, you realize that you were created for a life that doesn't have an expiry date to it. But you're initiated into that by God. The order matters. In another place, in in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, the gospel puts it like this. He says, to all who did receive him, Jesus, the Son, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, here it is, children of God. Children not born of natural descent. And this isn't just biological family. You didn't choose that. Nor by human decision. So this isn't your choice. Born of God. His initiative. Because the order matters. Hmm. So how do you know? Are you plagued with that? I mean, how do you know that this, this has actually happened in your life? Is it because at some point you prayed a magic prayer? And you just learned the words? And told if you pray these words, it happens for you? Listen, I'm not, I'm not down on prayer. Absolutely prayer is involved in this. But it's not a transaction that it sort of is initiated and driven by you and you spoke the right words. That's spell casting. This is not, this is not what God is aspiring to us. How do you know that the rescue effort has begun in your life? I was thinking about that a lot earlier this morning. And as I was reflecting, a few things came to mind. Three, actually. The first is, if, if you are the recipient of grace, if you have been on the receiving end of God's rescue mission, you're going to start enjoying life in the new kingdom. The kingdom of the Son. You're going to come to cherish its values. You're going to love its citizens. You're going to get fired up about its purposes and its mission. And equally important, the kingdom of darkness will no longer look as attractive to you as it used to. And it's not like it happens all at once, all immediately. But over time, you just find that the scales tip. And they tip so heavily in God's favor, which makes sense. Because it's his kingdom And it's his initiative. Here's the second thing. If you've been rescued into this new kingdom of the son, increasingly you're going to love the one who rules it. Increasingly you're going to, you're going to find yourself in awe of who Jesus is and what he's doing. Loving him more and more. And it just, it pours out of you. Worship doesn't get rushed or forced. You can't wait to do it. And here's the third thing. And this one might take a little bit longer to unpack, but, but increasingly, you're going to find it easier to appreciate, to like, to love the people in your life. Because you acknowledge that they, just like you, were recipients of grace. That they, they need to be on the receiving end of this. 
mean, God save us in the church from the posture that says, we've got it all figured out. We've got God dialed in. And those people out there don't. And so we're the rescuers that get sent out. No, no, no. We are all broken pilgrims walking sometimes on what feels like a broken glass covered road until God takes the initiative and rescues. There is no two orders of things. There's only one order. And it's God's and he moves first. Behind closed doors, we, we talk a lot about what we aspire to be as a church. What kind of, what kind of church uh, would God really love and use in the GTA in 2023? And I keep coming back to this idea that, that God wants his church to be so marked by grace, so, so transformed by it as the recipients of it, not the gatekeepers of grace, that it's celebrated freely and lightly and frequently. We want to be the kind of church that knows that we are rescued people before we were ever sent people. We want to be the kind of church that celebrates the rescue of others, that there will be never greater applause, enthusiasm, and celebration than when one lost soul is drawn back into the loving embrace of God because we recognize that that's our own story. We want to be that kind of place. That's all I got today. I just mentioned I'm tired, so <laughs> we're going to get out of here early. But, but I thought rather than filling this up with a lot more words, I'm going to invite you to try something else. If you feel comfortable with this, would you just take your outstretched hands and rest them on your lap? And uh, slowly close your eyes. When you assume that posture, you're doing a couple of things. One, you're just you're placing your body physically into into a vulnerable position. It's a posture of receiving. You're saying with your body that the order matters, and we want to get this one right. We want to receive from you, Lord, everything that you have to give. So it's, it's a physical posture, but it's also a symbolic posture of surrender. In the quiet of these moments, maybe you just want to ask that God can whisper into your ears, bring into your mind the word that he has for you today. And I know that there will be words of grace. Maybe there's simple words. I've rescued you. I've rescued you. You are mine. And I brought you home. I want you to stay with that posture for a few minutes. And then when you're ready, 
Maybe you want to open your eyes and join us in the worship of God's rescued people. When you've heard and received and honored, then we're ready to lift God up. God, would you have your way in these moments? Your initiative, your plan, your gospel, your grace. Given to a people who claim faith only because you first loved us, you first reached out to us, you've rescued us, redeemed us, made us wholly yours, and made us whole. Again, I just invite you to sojourn in these moments, and then when you're ready, you can open your eyes and join us in worship. This is an amazing grace. This is an unfailing love. You take our place, God. Jesus, you take our place. You lay down your life and you set me free. Thank for this amazing grace, God. For this Lamb who was slain, worthy is the King who conquered the grave, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, worthy is the King who conquered the grave, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. If you are ready, worthy is the Lamb who slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain.